if I were to give you a simple explanation for what sleep is about, it's about maintenance. Sleep is about maintenance. The slow wave sleep is the time in which the body is physically repaired. Growth hormone is released and repairs are carried out to tissues. Children grow during the slow wave sleep. And also memories are consolidated. So it's all about physical maintenance. And then the REM sleep or the dream sleep is about really about emotional maintenance. And it has a very specific function to carry out as well. and welcome to another HG podcast. I'm Jo Baker and I'm part of the HG team. Today I'm going to be talking to our expert Joe Griffin about exploring sleep and dreaming and for those of you who know me something you know that I could talk about for days. Joe is a psychologist with many years experience both in psychotherapeutic practice and in training psychotherapists for the Human Givens College. Over the last two decades as co-developer of the Human Givens approach to psychology and behaviour Thousands of health professionals have enjoyed his practical workshops and seminars on brief therapy for treating anxiety-related disorders, depression, trauma, and addiction. And since it's widely recognized that much mental distress comes from work-related stress, he's increasingly in demand by businesses to help them run more effectively by taking into account the innate needs of their customers, their employees, suppliers, owners, and shareholders alike. Now, for many years, he was the educational director of the Human Givens College, and he's really been at the leading edge of skill-based therapy research and practice. Joe's widely recognised as one of the most informed and entertaining speakers on human behaviour, and is also the co-author with Ivan Tyrrell on numerous books and publications, including Why We Dream, The Definitive Answer, and also lots of other books on treating anxiety and depression. So hello, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, our audience are absolutely delighted that you're here talking to us and they've followed your work and we have quite a few questions for you. But before we get to those, um, for our new listeners who are unfamiliar with your work, perhaps you could start by telling us why a sleep and dreaming just so important and why is it important that we're actually getting the right kind of sleep? Right. Well, thank you, Joanne. Um, sleep and dreaming is so important that if we don't get it, we die. So it can't get much more important than that. And we know this from experiments done with animals that when they're sleep deprived for a sufficient length of time, they actually die. And we also know that there's a mutation that can actually happen in human beings that stops them sleeping and they die relatively quickly after it. So it is necessary for survival. But it is not just that sleep is necessary for survival. We, we need to get the right amount of sleep and the right balance of sleep. And as most of your listeners will know, uh, sleep is made up of two different kinds of sleep. One is what's called slow wave sleep. And then there's the famous dream sleep, which takes place in REM sleep. And we need to get the right amount of both of these types of sleep. Now, if I were to give you a simple explanation for what sleep is about, it's about maintenance. Sleep is about maintenance. The slow wave sleep is the time in which the body is physically repaired growth hormone is, is released and repairs are carried out to tissues. Children grow during the slow waves sleep. And also memories are consolidated. So it's all about physical maintenance. And then the REM sleep or the dream sleep is about really about emotional maintenance. And it has a very specific function to carry out as well, both of which are necessary if we are to remain mentally healthy. Uh, too much dream sleep can actually trigger clinical depression. 
too little dream sleep, if you're predisposed to it, can trigger mania. So it's very closely connected to our mental health and well-being, uh, dream sleep, REM sleep. Thanks, Jake. So it really seems that it, it, it literally affects everything, both our physical and, and our mental health. Um, and so it's, it's really important that we understand how we can be, um, you know, working towards improving our sleep, because I think there's probably not one person who couldn't do with, um, you know, it making improvements somewhere along the way. So we have quite a few questions. The first question that we've got from, from our audience is, Joe, please could you give one of your salient explanations for the neuroscience of the 24-7 operation of the REM function? and its relationship to the dream factory. So in other words, what causes the dreaming to kick in and the relationship of daydreaming to dreaming at night? Wow, that's a complex question. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're answering it, Joe, and not me. <laughs> Thank you. The first thing we need, we, we need to understand and where I'll start with is what's called the REM state. The REM state is where dreaming proper takes place. In other stages of sleep, we kind of have little bits of dreams and thinking, but they are more prosaic. It is the dreams with the metaphors and the emotional content that takes place in REM. Now REM occurs about every hour and a half, two hours throughout our sleep period. Uh, in the earlier part of the night, we get short periods of REM and later in the night, we get much, especially towards morning, we can have 45 minutes worth of dream sleep. Now, what happens to trigger off the dreaming and get the whole REM factory going is this. When we enter the REM state, and REM stands for rapid eye movements because our eyes flick very fast left to right uh, during REM sleep. Now, what kicks it off is, is that an electrical impulse sent from the bottom of the brain, a place called the locus cerealis, and that electrical impulse, which is called a PGO wave, that electrical impulse comes up into the midbrain, and that impulse is saying there's something really interesting happening. It occurs during the daytime and anything novel happens. We fire off one of these PGO waves and it's saying something really novel is happening. And accompanying this wave, the body is inhibited from moving. The anti-gravity anti muscles get paralyzed. So we have this signal going up into the, into the emotional brain, part of the brain and it's saying something interesting is happening. But actually the body is paralyzed. There's no information coming in from the outside world. And that signal triggers the release of suppressed emotions from the, uh, from the previous state, suppressed emotions, things that we thought might happen or imagined might happen, which didn't happen. They get released. Now, ordinarily, they will be pattern matched to information coming in from the outside world. Say, what's interesting out there? This is what I'm expecting to happen. But there's no info coming in from the outside world. So that emotional pattern of expectation is released further up into the cortex and is pattern matched from memory which is why dreams are metaphors, pattern matched from memory and acted out. So in our dreaming in the REM state, this is a specific uh, state of brain organization that evolved for the triggering of dreams. Now, relating this to our waking state, th there's little doubt in my mind that what, it, what advanced the human species, shall we say, in its intellectual development beyond that of the ape was that we learned to access the same state of imagination which occurs in dreaming during the daytime. We learn to access it. But what's different about the daytime use of our imagination is this, is that in the dreaming, it's controlled from the brainstem with these PGO waves. In the daytime, we can just go into our imagination, start 
thinking about things that might happen or things that we would like to happen. And it doesn't have to be triggered from the brainstem. And our cognitive brain, part of our cognitive mind in the daytime can be uh, aware of what we're imagining and it may, inter it may, it may comment on it or it may decide to act on it or whatever. So it's not exactly the same state in the daytime as it is in the nighttime. The daytime is essentially accessing the theater in which dreams are acted out. And we call that theater our imagination. So that's absolutely fascinating. So when, when we're accessing it in, in the daytime, um, really, we, but we can create the similar learnings as we do when we're, we're in the REM state, either in, in the womb. Is that what you're saying? That we can lay down patterns of expectation um, to, to complete in the future. If you can imagine something, you're more likely to be able to, to achieve it. That is, that is so right. That, that is what we would call the constructive use of the imagination. Uh, but that would be used for goals for the future, etc. That's a really healthy stuff to do. Absolutely, but also, as as we know, we can misuse our imagination as well. And that is a danger. And that was the huge gamble, if you like, evolution took in allowing human beings to access to the to to, to the REM theatre in the daytime, our imagination, because. Not only can we use it constructively, we can use it destructively. And if we start using our imagination to excessively worry and to excessively ruminate, that sets up a whole load of expectations that are not going to be acted out, but will then have to be acted out in our dreams that night and may lead to excessive dreaming, which in turn drains the brain of energy. We wake up exhausted and we're setting the stage for depression. So yeah, it was a big gamble. But on the whole, I think we have to agree it paid off. The human race has been remarkably successful today. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, so we, we have another question here. Um, we, we've got quite a few to, to get through. So in your books, you describe the effects of sleep and dreaming in detail on an individual level. So not getting the right kind of sleep can uh, really seems to be quite a widespread phenomenon right now. So would you say then that as a society, we are perhaps in a sleep crisis? And if so, what would you say that the results of that sleep crisis could be on a social level? Right. Well, firstly, it is true that most of us are not getting the ideal amount of sleep. The recommended amount of sleep is between seven and nine hours, depending on the individual. And, and uh, an awful lot of people are getting more, more like six hours sleep. So we're not getting as much sleep as, as we should. The consequences of not getting enough sleep and when we don't get enough sleep, it's generally the dream sleep that we miss out on because that tends to occur primarily towards morning. And if we don't get enough dream sleep, we're going to wake up more emotional, more autonomically aroused, where our, all our appetites are going to be less controllable. That's why, for example, there's a correlation between um, sleep, not getting enough sleep and obesity, because we want to eat more, you know, if we're not getting the requisite amount of sleep, particularly dream sleep. Also, our our stress levels are going to be more easily activated. So we're going to be more, we're going to be more, a lot more stressed out if we're not getting the right amount of sleep. And, and that then has an impact upon our families, upon our colleagues. Because we're more emotional, it's also been shown that we make much poorer quality decisions. And here's one of the things we, we find in our, in our work in companies. People who are working excessive hours are not getting enough sleep as a consequence. As a consequence of that, they're more emotional and stressed out, which means they make poorer decisions, they're less productive. So therefore they're working more hours to compensate for their less productivity and they're trapped in a vicious cycle. It does not pay 
in productivity to cut back and sleep. You're actually more productive if you get the right amount of sleep. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think that, oh, well, I'd like to think that that culture is starting to change. Um, and, you know, people like you working, working in businesses and, and taking that forward. And I know that it was certainly driven over in the US um, from people like Ariana Huffington um, towards actually, you know, incentivizing staff on taking breaks and on improving sleep. Um, and I think it's something that, that we need and, and needs to be more widely understood on, um, on every level um, in yeah. society from, from uh, our young people who are also incredibly sleep deprived and, um, you know, massively overusing screens. Um, uh, which in turn is affecting their sleep, isn't it? So right from- yeah, well, well, it's almost tragic what's happening to young people, especially teenagers. Their mm. brains are set not to become fully active until after about 10 p.m. in the mornings. And we're asking them to get up early and to study uh, at a time when their brains are not fully active. Their brains are also wired to go to sleep much later at night than mm. uh, normal adults. And we're forcing them to try and go to sleep at a time when the brain doesn't want to go to sleep. We really need to adjust the whole school curriculum to fit with the biological rhythms of sleep you know, in, 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 in our teenagers. Mm. And it's great to see that some countries are actually starting to roll out some pilot schemes to, you know, if, initiatives in that. Um, so hopefully that's something that, you know, will, will come in over in, in this country um, uh, as well. Okay. So next one. Um, my dreams are often violent. I'm violent or I'm in a war and fighting. I am often in unfamiliar towns and going from building to building in one side and then out of the other. Sometimes it might be a hotel and I go round and round the hotel and up and down in a lift, but I don't really dream about people that I know very often. My dream colour seems to be in sepia tones and I get the impression that I don't look like me in the dream, but I don't ever see myself. What have you got to say to that one? Right. Well, our dreams are acting out our suppressed or unacted out emotional expectations from the previous day. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that's happening in the in the previous day in this person's life to trigger dreams of this nature and two possibilities jump out at me one is this person could be a gamer they could be playing a lot of games involving aggression and that and if you're having an expectation you're going to be able to take this person out to you know do various aggressive acts and if you're not if they're not happening that's leaving unfulfilled expectations which could then be acted out in metaphor in the dreams so maybe acting out uh, unfulfilled expectations from gaming involving uh, aggression games and war games. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that this person in their ordinary waking life is having a lot of aggressive impulses towards people that he's suppressing, perhaps at work and things like that and in buildings and he's suppressing it, holding back a lot of emotion and that's being acted out in his dreams. So if it is the latter, he would really benefit from some counselling, particularly human givens counselling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So the next um, uh, next um, member of the audience would like to know what you think about your theory on on sleep and in particular, how, how your, your theory on dreaming compares to the ideas put forward by Matthew Walker in his best selling book, Why We Sleep. Right. Well, Matthew Walker's theory of dreaming is that dreaming exists in order to remove the emotional charges from waking experiences. Now that hypothesis was a hypothesis that I tested myself 20 years ago and I found it not to be true. 
Um, I, I did I did that simply by carrying out an experiment where I listed all the emotional experiences from waking that I had, and then uh, had myself woken up several times in, during the night to capture all my dreams. And it was clear mm. that only some of the emotional experiences that I predicted would become dreams became dreams. And often quite low level emotional experiences did not become dreams. So I realized from that experiment that the theory which Matthew Walker is putting forward now is not actually right. There is a connection between our waking emotional experience and dreaming, but not the one he says. In fact, he characterizes his theory as that dreaming is given a psychotherapy sessions every night. Well, given the fact that all mammals dream, one wonders, do mammals really need to work cows and, you know, and mice actually need psychotherapy sessions every night, but <laughs> they do need these psychotherapy sessions. But, um, but in fact, if one thinks about it, we can see that the theory is simply not, cannot be true. Because if we are removing the emotional charges from our emotional experiences in our dreams, we're actually destroying learning. The emotional charges attached to our memories are the learnings we made. This, is, this, this was anxiety provoking, this was dangerous, this was positive. Uh, oh. This is something I need to be very scared of. These are our learnings. If you take off the emotional charges, people can't learn from experience. So it it's really doesn't stand up. It's simply not right. Um, the theory is half right is it, in that dreams are connected to emotional experiences, but they're connected to the emotional experiences that we did not complete it's to our expectations. And that, of course, has a huge benefit because it actually saves massive energy. The once, once we develop the ability to suppress Im Im impulses that were not likely to be proved profitable, we were saving energy. But when we suppress them, we were suppressing instinctive reactions. And we have to have some way of preserving our instinctive reactions. And that is by taking the brain offline, making the body paralyzed, acting out the suppressed emotions whilst we're asleep. And that way we discharged them without wasting much energy. And the, and, the, and the whole emotional system is kept in balance. So I'm not in agreement with Professor Walker's uh, dream theory. No, okay. So, I mean, and, and that makes complete sense because if, if we were to, to you know, get, get rid of the emotional charge every night, then we would, you know, we, we wouldn't remember that we perhaps needed to be, you know, wary next time we walk past next door's dog that can be a little bit aggressive, you know? Um, and in, in terms of uh, the rest of his, his, his thoughts around sleep um, and, and why we sleep, uh, what, about, what are your thoughts on, on those theories? Well, to, to give credit to Professor Walker, his team and himself have done an amazing amount of research, along with other teams in other universities, showing the vital function, for example, of slow wave sleep in preserving memories. That's, that's really, really good. They've also shown that getting the right amount of sleep is so important and when we don't get the right amount of sleep all our health indices, indices are compromised we're more prone to heart disease more prone to cancer more prone to diabetes so he's certainly highlighted or helped to highlight the importance of, of, of sleep for sure i'm giving full credit for that absolutely thank you so uh, our next question um comes from somebody who wants to know can i learn to solve problems in my dreams Oh gosh, there's so much confusion about the connection between sleep and dreams and problem solving. Now, there are a number of ways which we can actually get insight into problems through sleep and dreaming, but there are a number of different ways. The first one is simply this, that when we're working on a problem, 
it's not our logical mind that solves it, but rather our creative unconscious with involvement of our right neocortex. It's our creative unconscious. That's why we find that if we're working on a problem, we can't see the solution, that if we go for a walk, for example, and relax a bit, the answer pops into our mind. The reason is the solution has been developed in, in perhaps in our right neocortex, and the left neocortex needs to relax its grip in reality, its focus. And when we go for a walk or relax, then the solution can cross the corpus callosum and we can become conscious of it. So I find, for example, this happens to me so often that I've been working on some kind of a problem. I go to bed and five minutes after I got into bed to my wife's irritation, I immediately turn on the light beside me and jump out of bed and have to write something down because an idea just popped into my mind because I've relaxed because I'm going to sleep. It's jumped across the corpus callosum and I'm unconscious of it. So that's the first way sleep and dreaming can help us. We get the insights when we're relaxed, if we have them. And that can occur at sleep when we first go to bed. But also, we can get insights from dreams. Now, the thing we need to be aware of is dreams do not solve problems. They absolutely do not solve problems. But, what can, but there are two ways in which dreaming can help us find solutions to our problems. One is, if we actually ask our brain at nighttime and we say before we go to sleep, look, I'd really like you to help me dream up a solution to this particular problem. There's a possibility, not a high one, but a possibility that if in the course of the night, the solution becomes available to our unconscious mind. And we now have an expectation of dreaming a solution. We may dream a metaphorical solution, but the solution doesn't occur in the REM state. It occurs in other states of consciousness, but may manifest in the REM state. So that's one way dreaming can give a solution. Now that's relatively rare. Experiments have shown that to be relatively rare, but it does happen. A much more common way that dreams can give solutions is this. We can have a problem that we're working on, can't find a solution, and we can have a dream. And in the surface metaphor of the dream, the solution mysteriously appears. Now, we know the reason for this, actually. The, there's an instrument called the tahistoscope, which flashes images very, very quickly. And if you show a person images by a, with a tahistoscope going very, very quickly, the conscious mind can't register them. But if you record your dreams that night, the images that the conscious mind didn't register will now appear in the, in the metaphors in their dreams because the subconscious mind is, has perceived the images. So images that haven't yet reached consciousness appear in the surface structure of dreams. Let me give you an example because that sounds perhaps a little complex to that. I mean, what the, one of the examples that I really love is the invention of the automatic sewing machine because this was such a wonderful invention. It freed people, particularly women, from hours and hours of labor with, with, with handheld needles. Now, there was a man in London called Elias Howe. He was an inventor. And they lived, I believe, in Hammersmith in London. Now, Elias had been working for some time trying to invent an automatic sewing machine. And he just couldn't find a solution. His problem was that when he put the needle into the automatic sewing machine, it kept wobbling around. And he just couldn't find a solution. Well, this particular day, a group of creditors banged on his front door and demanded that he pay what he owed him. And if he, if he wasn't to pay them, they were going to have him hauled off and put into debtor's prison. So poor Elias was terrified. But that night he had a dream. And in the dream, he was in the jungle. He was surrounded by savages, all with spears in their hand about to kill him. When suddenly he noticed at the point of the spear, of every spear was a little hole. He immediately woke up and said, I know the solution to the automatic sewing machine. 
The hole should be near the point, not the top of the needle as in a handheld needle. If the hole is near the point, it's dead easy to stabilize it in the machine. And thus, the human race was gifted with the automatic sewing machine. Now that solution appeared in a dream, but just look at it. What was the dream about? The dream was the perfect metaphor for these savages, as you saw them banging on his door, threatening to put him into prison if he didn't pay his debts. So here's a dream which savages are threatening to kill him. Perfect metaphor. But the solution to the problem had already occurred in his creative unconscious, but it hadn't reached consciousness. And just like the images from the dehistoscope, it appears in the surface structure of the dream as a hole in the spheres. So that's the more common way in which dreams appear to provide solutions to our problems, but it's not the dream per se that's providing the solution, it's our creative unconscious. That's a fantastic explanation, Jay. Thank you so much. And that kind of leads into to the next question, really. Um, is, is there a place for dream work in therapy? And I know that you've just said that dreams do not solve problems, but they can, can help us to, to, to realise some of them. So is there a place for dream work in therapy? Oh, yes. And the reason, the reason is this, Joanne, is that if a client or a patient brings a dream to therapy with them. The dream is usually, the fact that they remembered it, because we only remember a tiny fraction of our dream. The fact that they remember this dream and they bring the therapy, more often than not means that it's connected to the emotional problems they're presenting. And it's, and it's showing us an unvarnished look through the metaphor of how the person, how the client is thinking and feeling. So yes, it can be very, very useful. And, and, and the clients are usually delighted when, you, when, when the therapist can see the metaphor and explain it to them. But let me just give you an example of how you can also utilize dreams in therapy. There was an example some years ago, I gave a dream workshop and this man uh, presented me with a dream. He wanted me to help him work on it. And the dream he had, and it occurred to him more than once and he found it very, very depressing. And the dream was, that he dreamt that he had his pony that he had when he was young. Now, he was very much into ponies when he was young, but this particular pony he'd won loads of prizes with it, and it was, he loved this pony. But now he says he finds himself in a neighbor's field with his favorite pony that he won all the prizes with, and the pony is dying. And he knows there's nothing he can do to save his pony, and he feels a great sense of loss. Now, I asked this man what was happening in his life, and he explained that he was an engineer and he was working in a factory and he loved working with machines being an engineer, but that the factory had closed down and he'd lost his job. And he felt that he was unlikely to be able to get a job in that type of work again. He did have a part-time job for the moment, but he felt he was unlikely to be able to get back into his field. So we can quickly see that in the dream, he's in a neighbor's field. So he's having to leave his field and he's with the pony with which he won all the prizes. So we can see the pony is standing for his self-confidence, his self-esteem, and it's dying because he feels he hasn't got the confidence to go into a field different to the one which he'd been in all his life. So I did a little bit of guided imagery with him. And in the guided imagery, I had him go back into the dream and to pat his pony and to thank his pony for all the happiness given him and all the competitions they'd won together. I then got him to go to a chemist shop and uh, ask for medicines that might help his pony. And he brings them back and he gives them to the pony and the pony revives. And he gets up and his pony is able to jump ditches on it again. Now that was the therapy. 
Now, I didn't see that person. It was a dream workshop. I didn't hear about him until several years later when I had contacted that person again. And following the therapy, he actually took up a job teaching at a university in another country. So you can see how the therapy uh, helped give him the confidence to go into another field. And by using the vehicle of the dream and giving it a different ending, we could, I could help him boost his confidence to be able to take on that new role. So yes, we can use dreams as metaphors, the, the client spring, use them and turn them into therapeutic vehicles to resolve issues. So yeah, if a client brings a dream, I am delighted and I will use it in the, in the therapy for sure. That's absolutely excellent. Thank you so much, Jake. So our next question then is, I regularly go to sleep quickly, but I wake up after half an hour having had a nightmare. The dream varies, but it's always scary. It can then take me a little while to get back to sleep again. I don't remember any other dreams during the night, but the nightmare memory stays with me even in the following days. I go to bed late, usually at midnight, um, and, and because of the nightmares, I've had to repeatedly check that I've closed all the windows and the doors and everything's locked downstairs. Is there anything I can do to stop these nightmares um, and, and the waking up after half an hour? Well, I suspect what's happening here, Joanne, is that this person has developed the fear of the nightmares. And, and by doing these rituals before they go to bed, they are creating uh, an anxiety in themselves, which is an unfulfilled expectation about the nightmare that's coming. And that's actually triggering these nightmares to repeat every night. So this person needs, there's several things. One, one thing, for example, uh, they, could, they, they, could, they could go and see a human given therapist and they could have their nightmares rewound, for example, or they could do some, instead of doing these fearful rituals, checking things out, etc they could um, be much more relaxed before going to bed and do something to relax themselves. That's another possibility. A third possibility is to, uh, and they can do this themselves or with a therapist, go into the dream that they're anxious and imagine that they have the resources with them, whether it's a person or equipment or whatever, to be able to take control of the dream and control the dream and give it a happy outcome. There are several ways it could be worked with. So working within their own their own imagination to, to change the end of the, the story. Yeah, I think they're triggering it because of the fear they're, de they're developing of having the nightmares. Absolutely. So they're, they're setting up that expectation, really, that they're going to have one. Exactly. Um, and I, I wonder, I mean, I've been, you know, as you know, work, work quite a lot with sleep and a lot of the sleep hygiene, um, you know, people from, from when I trained with you, Joan, it was quite a rare thing to, to hear about. Now it seems to be everywhere. All of these things, these musts, these should do's before you go to bed. Now, if you ask a person who sleeps well what they do, they just go, I don't know, I just go to sleep. But people who don't sleep well um, are, are adopting these good practices um, before bedtimes. Um, but I wonder how much some of this can become part of the ritual of not sleeping. And that's certainly something that I've seen um, in, in clients who've come to me as a, a last resort and gone, well, you know, I do everything that the sleep council says. I've read, you know, Matthew Walker's book. I, I do all the things that I should be doing before bedtime and I still can't sleep. Um, and I wonder whether how some of this becomes part of that expectation of, of I, I not think, sleeping. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. The worst thing we can do is get worried about our sleep because if we do, we're going to stop ourselves having good sleep. And we need to become much more chilled out about it. Um, it is useful, if you are having problems sleeping, it is useful to check those that sleep hygiene a bit, no doubt about that. But also what we need to look at is why are we having poor quality sleep? And the chances are it's because our stress levels are up, which means our needs are not being met in balance. And we focus on getting our needs met better, 
during the day, then we're much more likely to improve our sleep at night time. And if we're getting our knees met adequately, you, need, you don't need to worry about the sleep because what will happen is the pattern will rectify itself. You can have a poor night's sleep one night, but if you're not getting stressed out, you know, you'll have a good night's sleep the second or the third night. You know, the pattern is, is self-correcting. It is an instinct to sleep. Yeah. You, should, you, oh. should, you shouldn't have to work on it so hard. It's an instinct. No, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, so people are often, one of the mistakes that I see people say, oh, you know, I'm, I need to work on my sleep. I'm going to get an early night. So they, they yeah. do all the sleep hygiene and they, they get into bed and they're just lying awake. So their association with their bed is being stressed and awake. Um, yeah, absolutely. The one thing we can't do is force sleep. You can't say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm short sleep, I'm going to bed two hours early tonight, because you'll only sleep when you feel tired. There's no point in staying in bed for more than 30 minutes. If you're not feeling tired, you should get out of the bed. Because as you say, you're making the wrong connections. You're associating the bed with wakefulness instead of sleep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so another one here. Almost every night, um, oh no, almost every other night, I dream about my ex-husband. Um, this has been going on for years now, and I just put up with it, but I really want it to stop. The nature of these dreams are that I'm trying to get back together with him and we often end up having sex or I'm chasing him and begging him to get back with me. These dreams are really confusing because my ex-husband was physically and mentally abusive and it took an awful lot of strength to leave this marriage as I was both scared and not mentally strong enough. Um, and I was with him for, for, for 10 years but only married for nine months. It took everything I had to end the marriage and I'm very, very happily married for the past 17 years with my husband and two teenage children. The physical side of our relationship has gone flat, but my husband is the most wonderful, caring and loving person I could ever wish for. The thing that disturbs me most about this dream is that it's so frequent and so very real um, uh, with my ex that I feel really guilty when I wake up. And then with, with my waking hours, um, I would never touch him with a barge pole. Uh, she puts in brackets that I, I love saying that bit. Um, and I'm, I'm, guessing, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm guessing that I've not had proper closure on my old marriage. Any ideas, please? Oh, I'm so glad that woman wrote to us because we can give her so much reassurance right away. Whatever we see in a dream is a metaphor. Any imagery we see in a dream is a metaphor. It is not that is standing in for something else. So the fact that you have sex with your ex-husband in the dream, that is not about having sex with your ex-husband. That dream is not about your ex-husband. That dream does not suggest you've got unfinished business with your ex-husband. That dream is about the fact that you've got expectations you would like to have a more intimate relationship with your present husband. And the fact that that's not happening is giving rise to unfulfilled expectations that are being expressed metaphorically with you having sex with your last husband. So it's not at all about him, your previous husband. It is about your present husband and your desire to have a more intimate relationship with him. That's what that dream is about. Now, obviously the thing to do here is clearly your husband is a wonderful man and you have a really good relationship but you do need to talk about sex. So sex, is, it is an important part for most people of the intimacy of marriage or a relationship. And if you feel, find that you can't talk about it directly with him, uh, perhaps you might think about going to see a, a counselor and, and finding a safe forum which you could discuss any issues he's had, what his needs might be. He may just feel inhibited. He may have needs that he hasn't been able to express, had the confidence to express or whatever. Or maybe that, He's stressed out in his life, but there are issues there that would benefit both of you to get addressed. But please be assured this is not about your ex-husband and it's not about you wanting sex with him. 
I'm sure they're going to find that really reassuring, Joe, and just to know that that all that that guilt that they they've got, they can just let that go. Indeed. Um, so, could you share your thoughts then about lucid dreaming and the so-called psychic premonition dreams, um, and and perhaps its connection to neuroception? Right. Okay. Two things in there: uh, lucid dreaming and about psychic premonition dreams. Let's just talk about lucid dreaming first of all. Many, many people have had the experience of becoming lucid in a dream. What that means is that we're in a dream and we become aware in the dream, oh my goodness, I am dreaming. And often when that happens, people get a little experimental in this. I wonder what I can do in this dream. And often they'll check out, can they fly, jump over houses? And they find it, these dreams quite exhilarating for the most part. And then people think, you know, and a lot of people have thought about, wouldn't it be a wonderful psychotherapeutic tool if we could develop a technology that would enable us to go into our imagination and make it as real as in a dream, we could do all kinds of wonderful therapy there. And so vast sums of money have been spent researching dreaming to try and develop a technology that would reliably make lucid dreaming accessible. And whilst it has made some progress, uh, the work of Stephen Laberge will be very prominent here, for example. And there are rituals that you can do that will increase your chances of becoming lucid in a dream, such as staring at your hands whilst you're awake. And keep repeating to yourself, you know, if I see my hands in a dream, I become aware I'm dreaming. And do that a number of times and again before you go to sleep. And this does make people sometimes lucid in a dream. But for our part as human given therapists, we feel that this is a huge waste of effort, quite frankly, because... The REM theater in which dreaming takes place is completely accessible to us through guided imagery. And that's why we make such use of guided imagery in human given therapy. In the, in our, in the REM theater at nighttime, you know, we see people who are not there, we hear voices, et cetera, et cetera. But in guided, in guided imagery, particularly people going to deeper states, hypnotic type states, and, you know, it's routine for people to be able to see things that are not there and, and have experiences that are, that are not real, but seem real. So we have all the therapeutic benefits of lucid dreaming are available to us through the tool of guided imagery. And that doesn't cost very much to learn how to do or, and become fluent in it. And it's a really worthwhile thing to do, to be able to do guided imagery for yourself going before a difficult interview, to prepare for a difficult task, etc. It's a wonderful tool. Everybody should learn how to use it. It's, it's hugely powerful and it's something that once you've learned, you know, you, you've got that for life and an incredible thing to be able to teach, um, you know, and, and pass down to your, your children that power of harnessing that positive um, imagination and significantly less odd than staring at your hands um, and, uh, you know, thinking that you might see them in your dreaming. Um, so what about the psychic premonition dreams then? Oh, yes. Thank you, Chan. Now, that's interesting. I haven't got the slightest doubt that psychic premonition dreams occur. I've experienced them myself. But the whole area of parapsychology, um, people have, tend to have strong views about it. But there's such a wealth of information and such a wealth of research done that I don't think any open-minded person could deny the psychic phenomena take place. And so, yes, we can have pre premonition dreams. They don't happen that often from the... From the, from, the literature, from the literature that we, has been recorded. And that shows uh, people have them occasionally, and yet they occur. Now, why would they occur? Well, the thing of it is, there's nothing that mysterious or magical about the idea 
that we can access the future. I mean, Einstein's theory of relativity, derived from Einstein's theory, is the whole idea of a block universe, where space and time, past and future, all coexist simultaneously. So even physics is telling us that the future, in a sense, already exists. So that our unconscious minds can somehow, in the REM state, reach forward into the future and take an experience that hasn't yet happened, probably isn't all that surprising. So yeah, it happens. Is it related to neuroception? That isn't, neuroception is an idea developed um, by Stephen Porges. Um, and it's the idea that uh, maybe our, at lower levels of our nervous system, that our neurons can actually perceive information. I don't believe that happens. But what I think happens, and what actually happens is that just because we have a level of consciousness doesn't mean that's the only level of consciousness that's in our body as it were. I believe that there are many different levels of consciousness in our body that we don't have to be aware of. I believe our kidneys have a certain level of consciousness, nothing like what we have, but they have a certain level of awareness and all the different organs have. So there are many levels of awareness within our psyche as it, as it were. And, uh, and yes, those levels, only 1% of what we actually perceive reaches our consciousness. So yeah, it could be related to that idea that a lot is you know, ordinarily cut out for reaching consciousness. So let's focus on what's important in the present. But I have no, I have no problem at all. I fully accept that premonition dreams can happen from time to time in psychic phenomena. Absolutely. So our next question is, if psychosis is dreaming whilst you're awake, are drug-induced trips or highs in the same category, such as the natural use of uh, the, the, the natural drugs that the, the shamans use? The answer in a crude sense is yes. It is. It is the same phenomena from the REM state that you're inducing, which ordinarily, which when they occur outside of the REM state, we call them, psychic, we call them psychotic phenomena. Yes, it is those phenomena. But there's, it, there's more complexity to it than that. The REM state is like a doorway or a portal into other states of consciousness. Those other states of consciousness can be higher dimensional consciousness or they can be lower dimensional consciousness. People can go on bad trips. They can perceive things that are lower levels of evolution rather than higher levels of evolution. So with drugs and mind-altering drugs, we can access sometimes not just psychotic experience, but we can access we can access knowledge of higher states of consciousness so that in controlled experiments, people have had spiritual experiences with some mind modeling drugs that have been hugely beneficial to them as people. Now, I'm not, I absolutely do not recommend people taking mind altering drugs in unsupervised conditions with, without the drug being known whether you're taking the right amount while it's cut with, etc. I think it's highly dangerous. But I do think that it's possible to access knowledge of other, about other levels of reality true mind-altering uh, chemical intake. Yeah, I do. Mm. And I guess that kind of sort of, you know, is, is an interesting and, and pertinent topic at the moment with the use of psychedelics um, in, in, you know, the therapeutic use of uh, psychedelics um, yeah. and, and the, you know, the, the, the wave of, of evidence for um, how they're used in trauma treatment. Have you got any, you know, any, any opinion on, on that? Well, given that, the rewind technique that we have in human gifts is so incredibly effective. It would seem to me to be highly experimental dealing with trauma. Um, dealing with trauma, I'd be very wary of it because it, I feel it'd be so many variables uncontrolled. And yet, of course, it can work, undoubtedly, and work. But the question is, what are, what are the risks? Yeah, 
this, these I'm, explorations, when properly done scientifically, they're exploring and we're only at the edge of this knowledge. This is not reliable knowledge yet. And I have personally seen three people who have been permanently mentally damaged to taking mind-altering substances. And it's a combination of marijuana. I'm not, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not some bigot that says people shouldn't have pleasure or anything like that, but it's, a, it's to a combination of taking marijuana and other drugs. And what has happened to them is they have become permanently locked out of their experiences, permanently dissociated. And it's looked like, they feel like they're trapped in a, outside a glass looking out of reality and they can't connect to themselves emotionally or to other people. And that is a scary situation to find yourself in. So this whole idea of the random ad hoc experimentation with mind-altering drugs, given the risks that are potentially attached to it, to a percentage of the population, clearly not all of the population, but a percentage of people are vulnerable. And most people don't know if they fall into that vulnerable subcategories. Mm. I, I will be cautious about it all. Absolutely. And it's a, a question that, you know, that Gareth and I get from, from students is, you know, what, what do we think um, about the, the use of psychedelics? And um, our, our answer is, well, we have a really, really safe vehicle for, for working with trauma. So, you know, we, we use the rewind. So why would we need to, to experiment with anything else? So, um, OK, next question. Does telepathy live in the same category as the dream state? Wow, that's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> yes, 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 it does, yes. If you think of the REM state as a portal to all, the REM state has access to all the unconscious knowledge that we have. It can draw metaphors from anywhere. So telepathy, and we can, and, uh, and you can actually have telepathic dreams. I had a dream once where, where, where my wife's experiences, my wife had the experiences, but I had the dream, and I was in another country when I had the dream that was a corresponding metaphor for her waking experience, her emotional expectation. Uh, telepathy is connected to it because telepathy is, is about letting go of the conscious rigid hold that we have to have in waking reality a lot of the time and, and becoming aware of. And we, telepathy occurs particularly when we have emotional connections and empathy with people. And then then doesn't seem to be any limit, spatial limit, on how knowledge can cross almost instantaneously from one person to another. And we know this happens anyway in physics with entanglement. One particle has been close connected to another particle can instantly change the same moment this partner particle changes at the other side of the world. Yeah, telepathy happens. There is some connection with the dreaming in that it's accessing the unconscious mind. That's amazing. So how is it that we can program ourselves to dream, to find the solution to our problems overnight in our dreams, to sleep on it? That's the next, the next yeah. question. Yes, you see, yeah, the advice to sleep on something is well-founded advice for several reasons. One is that after a night's sleep, our brain is in a much ordered state. Stress levels have been brought down considerably, assuming it's a good night's sleep. And we're going to be able to think much more intelligently about our problems. So for that reason alone, sleeping on it is, is, is a good idea. That we can program ourselves to dream a solution can happen. Well, it doesn't happen that often. But yes, if you say to yourself, I have this problem, I want my dream, I want to dream a solution to this problem tonight. And I want to remember it in the morning. I want to remember the dream. It sometimes works. But as I explained earlier, it's not that the dream is solving the problem. The problem is being solved at another stage in the night's sleep. And the dream is the vehicle for uh, expressing the solution. Mm -hmm. mm. And it, it's really interesting, isn't it? That, you know, when I, I did some research into this, most languages have a phrase equivalent to sleep on it. Right. Um, 
so we you know we know that it's uh, it you know it it transcends all um you know cultures and um you know all, all, all people that that it's a a, a well accepted thing um a, that's a useful thing to do um quite often when um people come in to see me and they've perhaps been prescribed um some ssris um and they talk to me and there's there's one in particular that seems to have uh, have more of an effect on this but um they say oh uh, my, my dream it i've been having terrible dreams or i've been dreaming an awful lot more um and you know i i now ask you know what medication you know you're on any medication which i always ask anyway but um and i'm not ever surprised anymore when they tell me about well this this started after i started taking um these ssris i wondered if you had anything you know that you wanted to to add into that yeah it's a common perception when people put on on, on taking ssris that they dream more in fact they don't and we know that dreaming too much is one of the factors triggering the depression in the first place. So it would seem paradoxical that you're taking an antidepressant and you're dreaming more. Leaving aside for the moment the efficacy of antidepressants. Do antidepressants make us dream more? They don't. But what happens is that when we're depressed, the pressure we're creating to dream in ourselves through all our ruminations and worrying means that dreaming is brought forward into the first half of the night. And so we don't remember them because we only remember dreams usually coming near morning. When we take the antidepressant, it raises serotonin levels. So it rebalances the sleep pattern. So dreaming tends to occur towards morning and we're much more likely to remember dreams from morning. So it's not that the SSRIs are making us dream more. It's just enabling us to remember more of our dreams. Ah, okay, that's fascinating. Thank you. So final question then of, uh, for today. Um, I told myself to allow myself to dream of any incidents that I should be better prepared for in the future. I don't want to rattle on about that now, but I did have a dream that happened a few weeks later. I've only experienced that a couple of times. And I wonder, did you find that people who admitted this when you did your research um, for the Why We Dream, the Definitive Answer book? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. And, and, and it's well recorded in the literature as well, albeit anecdotal evidence, that people have dreamt of the future. No question. I've done it myself. It's happened. But... Um, People having access to psychic ability, I think it's partly a personality factor. Some people have more access to it than others. And also, if you work on it, you tend, you tend to have more of it. So yes, it is possible to dream of the future. And yes, you know, if giving yourself an instruction like that may well increase the likelihood that you will get a dream relating to the future. Um, there's lots, lots, lots of, lots of anecdotal evidence around this, but Nobody has demonstrated that this can be done consistently or reliably. It's more something that seems to happen occasionally rather than something that we can do consistently. But yeah, it can happen, sure. Absolutely fascinating. Um, and fascinating that's something that you could perhaps, you know, potentially train yourself into doing more frequently. Yeah. Joe, I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Um, so if you would like to find out more, um, please do visit um, the, the Human Givens um, website um, and, and have a look at Joe's work on there. And you'll find Joe's publications as well and the Why We Dream Definitive Arts book, which was mentioned during this podcast, as well as a range of online courses. And we'll add all of those links um, in the podcast description too. Joe, thank you so much for joining the RC Expert podcast today. I'm sure your knowledge and advice has really helped our listeners today. And thank you everybody for listening. Until next time, goodbye.